from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Kathy Hoganson. Kathy is an attorney by trade. She practiced family law in Richmond and also provided assistance to the Baha'i National Center. She spent 18 years in Haifa, Israel, in service to the Baha'i World Center. During that time, she published a book, Lighting the Western Sky, The Hearst Pilgrimage and Establishment of the Baha'i Faith in the West. We talk about her book in the interview. I started the interview by asking Kathy where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Uh, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia in the 50s and 1960s up into the early 70s. Coming from a very white, middle-class, southern family, it was very much an experience of the history of the Deep South and uh, a lot of regional pride, even going back to the Confederacy. There were, uh, the Civil Rights Movement was, of course, going on during my childhood, and I was very directly affected by that with uh, my schooling experience. And I think that it uh, was a stark contrast to the teachings of the Baha'i Faith what I was experiencing as a young white woman growing up in Richmond, Virginia during that period. Can you elaborate on how the uh, racial situation directly affected you in school? The uh, primary black people that I ever knew as a child were maids and gardeners. And suddenly we were uh, had integration thrust upon uh, the white community by the federal courts. And the people who were around me were very upset by that. And as a young person, I was trying to struggle to understand what that meant. And I remember as a six-year-old going to a restaurant that had a whites-only sign on the door and asking my parents why it was that sign there. I was, was hearing things that now I know were were the epitome of racism. This was the the idea that some people were superior or had a right to things that other people didn't have. So I was hearing a lot of very negative things from the adults around me about what was happening with the, the social movements of the time, but particularly the civil rights movement. And the culmination of that was my senior year in high school when forced busing started in the city of Richmond. The senior class was kept intact, which was, was of course, my class, but the rest of the high school classes were shifted. And suddenly my school went from being one that was almost totally white, I think we maybe had less than 30 African-American students there, to being 20 to 30 percent African-American. And there were some very strong racial tensions going on in that particular first year of the busing. The the peak of it was when there was a race riot 
one day during the lunch period. There were fires set all over the school, and uh, it was it was probably one of the most tense days that I ever will recall in my life. And the next day, there were armed uniformed police officers throughout the school building, and of course, many of the white students were absent. So uh, this was the social milieu that I faced as a young white woman growing up during that very turbulent period. And of course, also at the same time that this racial issue was going on, the war in Vietnam was getting campuses hot, and this was starting to trickle down into the high schools. I remember uh, that there was a very strong social consciousness that was starting to emerge among the friends my age and a little bit older, and we were starting to question things about what our general society was like, uh, what our parents had taught us, what our churches had taught us. The church that I went to, for example, was, I won't say the denomination, but one of the mainstream churches. They had to have a special meeting of the board when a brownie troop that was using the facility became integrated. They were afraid little African-American girls would start drinking from the water fountain at the church and as to whether the brownie troop could still use the facility. And this is the, the sort of mentality that I, as a questioning teenager, was looking at and realizing this was wrong. This was not how you should treat people. And starting to confront the adults around me with, with my ideas of what was fair, what was right and wrong. And so, of course, a few years later when I encountered the Baha'i Faith, it just seemed like exactly uh, what my social beliefs had, had grown to be with this in, a very highly charged period of social unrest that was happening during my, my formative years. And what were your parents' attitudes toward race as you were growing up? Oh, I think they had inherited the same racist attitudes that their parents had. You know, I could could tell that from talking to my grandparents, you know, that they had very strong negative feelings toward the African-American community. They had very warm, cordial feelings toward individuals within that community, it, actually in, endearing sentiments toward the ones that they, they knew personally. But most of those people were in the role of servant and were never treated as so, social equals. It would never have occurred to them, for example, to sit down uh, with the maid at the lunch table at the same time she was eating lunch, for example. Uh, I remember when I was a senior in, in high school, I was president of one of the, the, cl- uh, the library club at the, the, my high school. I invited the club and the two librarians to come to our home for dinner, and my mother was, of course, quite uh, happy to, to host that. But what I didn't tell her was that the assistant librarian was an African-American lady. She told me later that had she known that in advance, I could have only had the group over for dessert and not for dinner. So, you know, they they were drawing these very non-rational lines. You know, you can go here, but you can't go here. You know, you can't ride in a car with this person. You can't, you know, there were certain social boundaries that you were not supposed to cross with um, the African-American community. And it it was very much the attitude that they had grown up with from their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. So 
I know where it came from, but it was time to start changing it. Now, do you have any siblings? I do. I have five younger brothers and sisters. Now, did you all sort of progress the same way toward breaking this mindset of superiority over African Americans as you were growing up? I was up? always the pathfinder, you know, as the oldest. But uh, all of them, I think, would, would very much share uh, my opinion today. And uh, I think that they are all striving hard to not have those kinds of feelings. I think that they, they find it antiquated that such an attitude was even present in the family. Some of the youngest uh, of my siblings don't even remember much of this because things happen so quickly. And I think that was, was probably part of why uh, it was so tumultuous. People were finding their whole world view of, of, of how people should get along between races and other communities shaken to the core in a very short period of time. And now, of course, they would, would very much agree that all people are one and, and that we should not have any sort of prejudices toward uh, people who are different from ourselves. But they didn't get that from their parents. So what did you do after high school? I went straight on to Emory and Henry College, where I studied for four years and got a BA in political science and a minor in history. Then I went on to University of Virginia for law school and spent three years there and began my legal career. So at what point did you run into the Baha'i faith? While I was an undergraduate at uh, Emory and Henry, one summer I was home visiting uh, my parents for summer vacation and had a temporary summer job in a state office. One of the other students who was there was a big fan of Seals and Crofts. I didn't quite share her enthusiasm for them as a band, but they were coming to Richmond, and she was looking for somebody to hang out with and go to the concert. So I thought, well, why not? And uh, it was at that concert that for the first time I encountered the Baha'i Faith. And then where did it go from there? During the concert, I remember they made a statement that really struck home with me. They said that uh, they introduced a song. I don't even remember, remember which song it was, but they introduced it by saying that it was based on the Baha'i concept that all religions come from God. And one of my other interests had been the ecumenical movement, which uh, during the this late 60s, early 70s, was very much alive and well within Protestant mainline Christianity, and that just, uh, it was like a little bell went off in my head, and I thought, well, that makes sense, of course. And so they invited the audience to stay afterwards if you wanted to hear more about the Baha'i Faith. My friend was very much a night owl, so the two of us decided, why not? We uh, liked what we heard. They invited uh, those who had stayed for that to go to another location on a university campus to continue the conversation. So we went there. By that time, it's probably midnight, I think. And uh, again, we're very much taken by what they had to say. That evening, the local Baha'i community in Richmond was passing out flyers. They were going to be holding a public meeting at a home the following Friday night. It was in a neighborhood that I was quite familiar with. So we decided we'd go. Not knowing any of the Baha'is in the area, we just showed up unannounced. 
I now realize that that's sort of unusual. But I continued to attend those meetings for about six or eight weeks and then decided, based on what I would consider to be a very deep conversion experience, that this was the right thing for me. So why did you say it was to arrive unexpected or not announced was uh, like out of the ordinary? It sounded like the meeting was open to the public. Well, most meetings that are in homes, people, uh, even if you invite the public, the general public usually comes only if they know somebody. Most Americans, I think, are a little intimidated going to a meeting at somebody's home uh, if they don't know uh, anyone who's going to be at the meeting. So that's what what I meant by that. I think if it had been at a public library or whatever, it would have been a little less unusual. So uh, just in my many years, I haven't experienced people showing up from a flyer at someone's home very often. But back in those days in the early 1970s, particularly there was uh, such a youth movement among uh, high school and college students, and the Baha'i community was very much affected by that. The meetings were full of young people with guitars, sitting around on floors, singing, and, you know, just uh, what one would expect during the period that brought us to the hippies. So you said something about a significant spiritual experience. Are you able to describe it for us? Well, it's a, a little bit of a long story. I was very active in my church. I always was a religious person. I loved going to church. I would even drive my parents crazy on Sunday mornings. They would rather sleep in. I insisted, no, I had to go. They were very happy when I got a driver's license so that I had that option without them uh, taking me. I also did not like particularly the, the racism that I saw in the church and the, the lack of social consciousness. And so several other youth and myself, at the beginning of this same summer when I would encounter the Baha'i faith, but before I had done that, we had asked the uh, minister if we could put on a youth worship service and do it our way. He was a little bit concerned about what we would try to do, but uh, after a number of meetings with us, he agreed to let us do that. And I think when I started that process of trying to do this special worship service for the church, it was in part to sort of lash out at, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you loving everybody? What is it that makes you not embrace the neighborhood around you that's uh, less uh, affluent, that's becoming a different color and so forth? As I started investigating the Baha'i faith, though, my feelings about the whole worship service that I was planning started to transform. And the more I knew about the Baha'i faith, the more I could see that it was something very beautiful that I wished I could give to them. I could see that I was becoming closer to Christ through my association with the Baha'is. And I felt like they were missing something that I had been given as a a great gift. And I wasn't angry anymore. In fact, I was almost reluctant to continue to go forward with this worship service, but I felt very compelled to continue. So finally, the day came and, and we did the service, and it was amazing. 
you could really, I think, feel the Holy Spirit in that congregation that day. People were weeping. We had a number of, of the adults in the congregation send us uh, notes afterwards saying how much it had meant to them. And when it was over, I didn't have a sense of accomplishment. I had a sense of having been used. Now, one of the things that had started happening in, in my life the week or two before the this worship service was I was really starting to think maybe I should consider being a Baha'i myself. But I also thought, no, I don't want to desert my church. But I, I felt that uh, once I did that worship service, it was like this giant rock had been removed, and I knew I had to be a Baha'i. I knew I couldn't put it off, even if it was inconvenient or uh, something that I wasn't didn't feel that I had read every book yet uh, that I wanted to read about it. I just knew I had to, to be a Baha'i and I couldn't put it off and that I had done what I needed to do for that church. And now it was time for me to do something else with my life. And so uh, that week after the worship service, I went to the home of some of the Baha'is who had been holding these public meetings and uh, just showed up unannounced and told them I wanted to be a Baha'i. And they started jumping up and down and screaming. And <laughs> now I understand their feelings of elation. For me, it was something that I felt very compelled to do. What was it that you felt like you had to become a Baha'i? Uh, it would be almost impossible to explain that inner feeling. Mm-hmm. It was just that I knew it was the right thing and I knew I had to do it. And I think it was still a number of years after that before I fully came to appreciate who Baha'u'llah was. Obviously, none of us ever, uh, you know, if I had 10 lifetimes, I would never fully appreciate who he is. It wasn't that I had made a rational decision. It was it was at a deep down push that I had to, a call that I had to answer, I guess mm-hmm. would be one way to put it. So, Kathy, what did you do after you got your law degree? Well, the first job I had was clerking for the United States Court of Appeals in Richmond. Uh, the, I uh, did that for two years, and then I went with Southwestern Legal Aid. I always loved Appalachia and the Appalachian people and had gone to college in that region, and so I felt uh, also that I wanted my work as a lawyer to be service-oriented, and uh, Legal Aid fit that for me. I had not been there a full year when I was approached by the Baha'i National Center and asked to come to Chicago to uh, to work at the Baha'i National Center. So I did that for a few years. And then uh, when I returned to practicing law, I went back to my home city of Richmond and set up a small private law practice where I was mainly doing family law. So what were you doing at the Baha'i National Center? What was your responsibilities there? I was not doing a whole lot with the law. I did a little bit with the law, but not a whole lot. You know, the Baha'i faith has its own internal legal system, its own justice system within the Baha'i community. And I was working with the office that handled cases for our national governing body, the National Spiritual Assembly. And in fact, uh, I'm now back uh, doing that same job after an absence of almost 30 years. It's very rewarding because 
But since we have no clergy, many of the intense personal problems that a member of a church congregation mm-hmm. might go to their minister to help have resolved, members of the Baha'i faith would go to their local spiritual assembly, which is the, the local governing body. And sometimes these are very difficult cases because life is difficult and, and all the problems of the world that are out there are brought into the, the Baha'i community because Baha'is reflect everything about life. And so using the spiritual teachings of the faith and occasionally my knowledge of law, we try to work with both individuals and the local communities to help them um, resolve these very often thorny difficulties and to bring people to some sort of resolution that leads to their spiritual growth and resolves the problem. When you say uh, family law, what does that usually mean when, you're, when you went, returned to Richmond and started your own practice? When I was first out of law school I, and working for the courts, I also was involved with a citizens group that was working to change the sexual assault laws to make them more um, conducive to the victims of sexual assault, the rape shield laws and so forth. And so when I came back and and was working on family law, which was mainly divorces and occasional real estate transactions and so forth, but mainly domestic relations issues, I was approached by some of the same rape crisis centers and and other people who had known me from working with the Virginia General Assembly uh, a few years earlier. They were beginning to see a number of children who had been sexually assaulted. This was something that had not been reported. It's always been going on, but somehow it had never come out. And in the early 1980s, suddenly there was a consciousness that not just adult women were victims of sexual assault, but so were children. And so rape crisis centers, several people from those asked me if I would help them with changing the laws again to make it easier for children who had been victimized to have their testimony entered into uh, the court. And so I spent uh, about three years helping to organize a coalition of agencies and uh, organizations, nonprofit organizations, to get the Virginia legislature to um, pass some laws that made it possible for children's testimony to get into court uh, without traumatizing the child quite so much. Because of that reputation, unfortunately, I also ended up with a fair amount of cases that involved children who were being abused. Tell me about your Appalachian experience. Well, there were days when I was driving around the mountains on business when it was a beautiful fall day and the leaves were turning colors and I would just couldn't believe I was getting paid to do that. I just loved the people of Appalachia, particularly the ones who were from the more remote areas. You could hear their their Scotch-Irish ancestry come out when they would start to speak. They had very deep roots to the land that they were living on and very strong family ties. And I just thought it was amazing to be able to work with them and try to help them. The Legal Aid Society that I worked for 
had its offices in a community center that was uh, an old house that uh, had been converted for that purpose. And the downstairs was a craft center where they had, you'd get elderly ladies making uh, quilts in a group and uh, teaching traditional crafts. It was wonderful just to even walk through there and to, to get to know them and, and to, to know what they were doing. Coming from Richmond, it was another world. I just loved every minute of it. But uh, then when I got the call to go to Chicago, I felt, well, this is where I'm needed. I go where I'm needed. Were the issues in Appalachia unique compared to what you had experienced, let's say, when you were back in the Richmond area? Well, uh, I was obviously dealing with poor people, and I had dealt some with them in, in Richmond, but the urban poor and rural poor are very different. Uh, you know, it's one thing if you're uh, living in a tenement sort of a building in uh, a city, and another thing if you are on the same land that your grandfather farmed and you at least have a few chickens, hogs, and a, a small garden, you have a very different approach to life in the world. So uh, the thing that I saw with the poor of Appalachia was uh, a lack of value of education. They wanted their young people to start producing economically long before they finished high school and actually would, would urge their children to drop out of high school. But yet they had a very strong social connection to their churches and to their family. There was a very strong social safety network among the relatives and immediate neighbors there in Appalachia, and I just found that to be wonderful. But you were dealing with people who had very few job opportunities. They had not taken educational opportunities. They didn't take care of their health. During the period of the, the, the tail end of the war on poverty from the LBJ period, and so there were lots of social agencies that had come in to that region. Appalachia was one of the poster childs for the uh, war on poverty from the Johnson administration. And so there was a, a, a lot going on to try to raise up those very blighted areas in the mountains where you had such extreme poverty. It was interesting because these, these were people who were poor, but they had this very rich culture. So they were poor in their pocketbook, but rich in spirit. And I, I very much appreciated that. Do you still have your law practice in Richmond? Well, I'm now back working for the Baha'i Faith again. My husband and I, uh, I got married after a few years of practicing law and had two babies very close in time, uh, less than 12 months apart, actually. And uh, my law clients didn't like that, and my kids didn't like that I was having law clients. So <laughs> I sort of phased it out, and then uh, just as I was starting to go back full-time again as a lawyer, my husband and I were invited to serve in Haifa, Israel, at the World Center of the Baha'i Faith, and we stayed there for 18 years until spring of 2010. So it was a little difficult after so many years of being out of the legal profession to get back into it as a, a full-time job. So how old were your kids when you went to Haifa, Israel? They were just turning six and seven. And what was your responsibilities there at Haifa? 
Oh, I did a variety of things. During the early years, it was very difficult for me to do much more than occasional editing and, and helping with special events and so forth because of the school situation. Our kids were in local Hebrew schools. They had to learn the language. Um, they needed tutors. So my day was quite full just with the family during the first years. And then over time, I did a number of things in, in Haifa, I worked with the Baha'is who come as pilgrims to the holy places as one of the guides who would take them around and and uh, explain the history and spiritual significance of of their journey um, as they they went from place to place and then I uh, also worked for one of the uh, main offices at the World Center where I did research and writing. Now, why are there Baha'i holy places in Israel if the origins of the Baha'i faith is in Iran? The Baha'i faith has been in Israel ever since 1868, and it was not of their making. It took both the Shah of Iran and the Sultan of Turkey to, to get us there. These two monarchs, or emperors really, because they had empires at the time, were both trying to get Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of our faith, out of circulation, as it were, because no matter where they sent him as an exile, if he had any contact with the general public, he immediately gained a following. People were just attracted to him. So finally, out of desperation, he was sent to a prison city of Akka in uh, northern Israel, the city was impregnable. It had not only a, a moat around it, but very uh, double thick walls that had been built by the Crusaders and then fortified uh, later by the um, Saladin after he expelled the Crusaders. And so this little city, which only had two gates, one to get in or out of Seagate and a land gate, it was locked at night, it had been turned into a penal colony. And the air, the water of the place was so bad that only people who were accustomed to it could survive it. So when a political prisoner was sent to the city of Akka, usually they would get sick and die within a short period of time. And that was most likely the intention when Baha'u'llah and his small group of followers and family were sent there in 1868. And in fact, they all did get sick, and some of them did die. But Baha'u'llah survived, he got better, and he uh, ended up living the last several decades of his life there in the Holy Land, and he's buried there. So we very much see Israel, the Holy Land, Palestine, as very important to us. It is where our holiest places are. We love Israel, we love Palestine, the Holy Land, because of the connection with Baha'u'llah and the fact that he is buried there. So you said you were there at the Baha'i World Center for 18 years. Yes. What was it that had you leave and come, come back to the States? Well, age. <laughs> my, my husband was the uh, head of the finance department. He was past retirement age, and uh, we felt uh, the pull of elderly parents and 
his age that it was time to, um, at least for him to retire. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we returned to the United States. Do you have any other activities in addition to working with the Baha'i faith regarding uh, legal support? Well, I am secretary of our local historical society, and I had written a a Baha'i book while I was in the Holy Land that was published about uh, the time that we left. It's a history of the Baha'i faith in the United, the early years of the Baha'i faith in the United States called Lighting the Western Sky, and it's focused upon um, a group of 15 Americans who made the first trip to the Holy Land to meet Baha'u'llah's son, Abdu'l-Baha, back in the winter of 1898-1899. So I I now have the writing bug, and um, the Historical Society was recently approached by uh, a publisher that does these wonderful photographic histories of communities to put out such a book. And so at the immediate moment, that's my other job is trying to complete one of those on the history of West Point, Virginia. So sometimes my head is swimming with the faith and other times it's swimming with Pocahontas and John Smith and the Civil War and some of the other exciting aspects of the little town that I live in. So uh, I'm always interested in history, and it's been a real pleasure to um, be able to um, bring to life the history of where we're we're currently living. So that's the biggest thing that I'm working on. I'm also uh, now in the early stages of working on another Baha'i book that will be a, a biography. Can you name who the figure is that you're doing a biography on? It's a gentleman named Horace Holley, who was for many years the Secretary of the U.S. National Assembly. He was very instrumental in getting the Baha'i Faith up and running in the United States in terms of its organization. He was a minor poet and playwright, very interesting person who had a a very colorful younger life and uh, was very important to the firm establishment of the faith in um, the United States. Would you be willing to read an excerpt from your book, Lighting the Western Sky? Maybe a favorite passage? Let me see if I can... Oh, yes. This is talking about Edward and Lua Getzinger, who were the first Americans to ever go on pilgrimage and they were also the first Americans to meet Abdu'l-Bahá as Baha'is. So, Kathy, maybe you could explain to folks who Abdu'l-Bahá is. Okay. Abdu'l-Bahá was the son, the eldest son of Baha'u'lláh. He spent his life as in exile with his father and a, as a prisoner with his father, and then after his father's passing, he continued to be a prisoner of thought, a prisoner of conscience for the Ottoman Empire, He endured all sorts of hardships because of his faith in his father during his father's lifetime, sort of served as his father's right-hand man. Far more than that, he's been called by Baha'u'llah himself the mystery of God. And the name Abdu'l-Bahá is one that Abdu'l-Bahá gave himself. It means the servant of God because he wanted everyone to know that he considered his highest station to be that of, of the servant. And even though after his father's passing, 
he was the head of the faith until his own passing in 1921. He was the essence of radiant acquiescence, of humility, and an uncanny wisdom. This year, the Baha'is in the United States and parts of Europe are celebrating the 100th anniversary of his visit to this country. He came here in part because about 12 years before that, a group of Americans went to see him. And it was really because of that pilgrimage that the the faith not only took off in the United States, but became much more firmly grounded. And so after uh, a very short period of, of rapid growth, the friends in the West were urging him to come and visit them, and as soon as he was released as a prisoner, and that t- by that point he's in his late 60s, he's an elderly man in very poor health, he slips out of Akka and Haifa and gets on a ship, heads to Egypt, and then begins what would become a three-year more than a three-year journey through um, Egypt and then Europe and then the United States and a little bit of Canada. He actually crossed the United States to San Francisco and down to Los Angeles and then back across the United States. Quite an amazing journey, but that's not what my book is about. My book is about that first group who went to meet with him. And the very first people from the United States, first Westerners truly, who were Baha'is and were able to meet with him. By this point, Baha'u'llah has has already passed away some uh, six years earlier. Abdul Baha'i is now the head of the faith. He's technically still a prisoner. He's very circumscribed in what he can do. He's constantly watched. There are spies everywhere, including in his own household, and under great danger and with a bit of a cloak of secrecy, uh, this group of Americans were allowed to come and see him over a period of several months, and the Getzingers were lucky enough to be the first of that group to actually meet him. Edward Getzinger was of German origin from Michigan. He was a homeopathic medical doctor. He was a, a licensed physician. And his wife, Lua Moore Getzinger, was from upstate New York. She was from a farm there in upstate New York and had studied acting in Chicago, which is where the two of them had met. They were there because they had told the great lady of California, Phoebe Apperson Hearst, the mother of William Randolph Hearst, about the Baha'i faith, and she had become so intrigued and desirous of meeting Abdul Baha that she funded this trip. And uh, Edward and, and Lua, as I said, were the first two who were allowed to actually go to Akka and meet this prisoner, Abdul Baha. So this is what I'd like to read. This is about their, their first encounter with him. And this would be December 1898. Sunday morning, 10 December. The Getzingers awoke early, following a second restless, seemingly interminable night of little sleep and much extolling in whispers of their great blessings and good fortune. They put on their best new clothes, the ones purchased in Paris for the express purpose of meeting their Lord. As Lua later recounted, they both felt at the time that the best attire they owned 
was not even half good enough for the occasion at hand. The day they had anxiously awaited had arrived, and so they paced about in their hotel in Haifa until about 8.30 a.m., when at last a carriage pulled up to the hotel to take them, along with Caroline, his elder, eldest daughter, around the edge of the bay to the ancient city of Akka, the place of all places, the new Jerusalem, the holy abode of the Most High, and the dwelling place of our gracious Lord. Lua wrote the following vivid account of that morning of mornings for the believers in Chicago. It is about five miles from Haifa to Akka, the road close to the sea, indeed in the sea, for the horses were walking in the water, and at times the waves dashed nearly to the top of the wheels. After riding for about a quarter of an hour, we could see the city in the distance. It was beautiful, a beautiful morning, and as we looked, we could but think of the description in the Bible, a city all of gold beside the crystal sea, it was bathed in a flood of golden sunshine, and the splashing up against its walls sparkled with splendor. We gradually approached nearer and nearer until at last we passed the shed which serves as a coffee house outside the wall and entered the city by its solitary gate and drove straight to the house of Abba Sefendi. We entered the garden ascended one flight of stairs, and were shown into a hall or reception room where we removed our wraps and were welcomed by the uncle who had told us to pass into the next room. Dr. K went ahead, and by the violent beating of my heart, I knew we were soon to behold the blessed face of the prince of the house of David, the king of the whole world. We reached the door and stopped. Before us, in the center of the room, stood a man clad in a long raiment with a white turban upon his head, stretching out one hand to us, while his face, which I cannot describe, was lighted by a rare, sweet smile of joy and welcome. We stood thus for a moment, unable to move, and my heart gave a great throb, and scarcely knowing what I was doing, I held out my arms, crying, My Lord, my Lord, and rushed to him, kneeling at his blessed feet, sobbing like a child. In an instant, my husband was beside me, crying as only men can cry. He put his dear hands upon our bowed heads and said in a voice that seemed to our ears, like a strain of sweet music. Welcome, welcome, my dear children. You are welcome. Arise and be of good cheer. Then he sat down on a low divan, and we sat on one side, almost facing him, Dr. K and his daughter on the other side, and he began to talk to us. Edward would always remember the intense emotions of that first meeting with the Master as well, but he also remarked in the memoirs of his astonishment at the directness, the simplicity of the event. They had expected a grand ceremonial entrance. 
What they experienced instead was love unalloyed. That very same day, back in Paris, a second significant, though more public, event took place. Historians of the future would mark the end of the Spanish-American War as the beginning of what would become known as the American century, the period during which the United States became the dominant world power. That same day, 10 December 1898, representatives of the warring parties signed the treaty that formally concluded the war instigated months earlier by Phoebe's son. The American century literally began the day the first American Baha'i pilgrims arrived in Akka. So, Kathy, thank you so much for sharing your story and, and your book. Well, available on Amazon.com. What can I say? <laughs> and let's say it again. It's Lighting the Western Sky. Western Sky. Yeah. And the subtitle is The Hearst Pilgrimage and the Establishment of the Baha'i Faith in the West. Well, the best of luck to you, Kathy, and thank you so much. Thank you, Warren. It was a real pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kathy Hoganson, a Baha'i who spent 18 years working at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel, and the author of the book Lighting the Western Sky, The Hearst Pilgrimage and Establishment of the Baha'i Faith in the West. You can find her book on Amazon.com. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Let God suffice it. Say God suffice it. All things above all things. And nothing in the heavens or in the earth. But God suffice it. Verily is in himself the knower, the sustainer. Verily is in himself the knower, the sustainer, the omnipotent, the omnipotent, the omnipotent, the omnipotent. Say God, suffice in all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth, but God suffices, say God suffices, all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth, but God suffices, verily sustainer verily is in himself the knower the sustainer verily is in himself the knower the sustainer verily is in himself the knower the sustainer I will be a 
happy and joyful be Oh God, I will no longer be Full of anxiety Nor will I let trouble harass me This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.